And welcome back, listeners. It is the uh, day that you've all been waiting for. Season 3 of Riddles in the Dark kicks off. Brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. And I am your co-host, Dave Kale. And with me, as always, is the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and Trish Lambert. And we, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Let's get right to it, because we know you've all been dying to hear what we thought about the movie. That's so. Right. Good morning, you two. Good morning. So, uh, good morning. First, we're going to start off by kind of explaining, you know, since this is the first episode of season three, and we are working towards the grand climax of the Riddles in the Dark saga. Um, we we wanted we we've decided to make a few changes this year. One of our themes, as you will have no doubt detected, and and certainly the differences I am sure going to shine through episode by episode for the entire year uh, is increased organization on our part. So one of the things we're, we're changing, we're changing up the way that we do our riddle game a little bit this year. And our goal here is to separate more the period of the year in which we are just, you know, talking about an, you know, doing analysis in, in advance, uh, you know, doing analysis and speculation and then the time of the year when we shift towards really doing analysis of what we've been seeing, because increasingly I've, I, you know, last year, you know, this happened a little bit in the first year and it was a little bit more pronounced for me in the second year, getting sort of uncomfortable and mixing those things when we're still asking riddles, but riddles are being answered or half answered in trailers and, and just having the whole thing kind of not be consistent in that way. Um, so what we're going to be doing is, um, is we're going to have, you know, right, right around the time the first real trailer comes out is when we're going to actually close our official riddle competition. Um, so we're going to have, you know, a, a bunch of riddle episodes leading up to that point. And then the, you know, we'll still have this stuff posted if you still, you know, if, so for people who discover us late, um, they can still fill out a, you know, a, a ballot and stuff. But, um, but as far as official entries into our riddle game competition, um, will have to be submitted by the end of that period. And right now we're looking at, uh, what do we say, August, the end of August or September? Um, right in there is, is the area that we're thinking of for the end, the official end of the riddle contest in that way to sort of... Last episode is scheduled right now to be the Friday before Labor Day weekend. Okay, which is right, the very first, right, yeah, right. So then the deadline for submitting would be somewhere like a week to 10 days after that. Uh, yes, that's right. So, so right at, so you're looking at like the first half middle of September basically is when the, the official riddle contest will continue. And then of course we will, you know, we'll be continuing to have episodes. We'll continue to do stuff, but that's when we'll then after then we'll be focusing on discussing the trailers, discussing the extended edition of the desolation of Smaug when it comes out, discussing the, you know, the soundtrack and, and all, you know, all of the other stuff, the video logs and, and the other things that are, that are released as we then you know, shift from simple book discussion and speculation uh, and analysis to th looking at what they're actually showing us and seeing what evidence we have of what they're actually doing. So now Brianna makes a point and I want to answer this because we do have an answer for it. She says, unless they have a teaser trailer in early summer. Well, sure. And, and, and Jackson's going to have vlogs come out, you know, before that. But here's the deal. We're not going to talk about those in Ribbles in the Dark until after the game is over. Number one. Number two is... Even the co-hosts get to change their answers before the deadline. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So that everyone will have the chance to submit their final answers. So it's true, Brianna. We, I mean, there was the teaser trailer that was released in June last year. But as I, if my memory serves me correctly, 
we got very few definitive answers to riddles in that teaser right. trailer. By the time we got the second and third trailers, much more was being revealed, and there were some pretty definitive answers uh, to at least one or two riddles um, at that point. Um, but the teaser trailer, I don't think so much. So um, anyway, so so we're we're going to we're going to kind of take that stuff into account. Um, but yeah, we'll do. We'll do a more detailed analysis of that stuff when we get to the analysis portion. So wait, when, if, when the teaser trailer comes out, we're not going to do a four-hour nope. frame-by-frame analysis <laughs> no. of it? No, we'll wait until after the game's over to do that. Yeah. Those are like people's favorite episodes, though. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see you know, if, uh, uh, we can always do a special. Yeah, suppose, we can always do an know. extra one. Um, yeah. We just don't want to lose Thanks. our actual analysis episodes, too. Right. But, we want to stay on schedule. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Discipline. Arr, that is discipline. the that is the, that is the philosophy. That's right. Rigor and discipline. That's totally what we're about here. See, I gotta say, I mean, you guys could be creating a monster here because you know, Corey. I mean, you asked me in the year one if I would be the project manager for Riddles in the Dark, yeah. but I kind of matched my style to you and Dave. <laughs> so, so you didn't. So you just didn't manage. <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of did, but I didn't really like press too hard, you know. But now you're like saying this, and I'm like, okay, I'm taking this as carte blanche. Exactly. Kate Neville says, We shall all burn together. (laughs) I am death. (laughs) Don't worry, we already regret it. (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. We're gonna be we're gonna we're gonna we're we're it's it's gonna be fantastic. The we're gonna be organized. Corey knows how to get me to stop that. He just sends me a sarcastic email. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, okay. So I just, just to let you know. So and, and of course we're going to start the year to, uh, today's episode and the second episode. We're going to have a, a two that are really focused, looking backwards on the desolation of Smaug. Um, today is going to be more uh, more kind of theoretical issues and general responses. In the second episode, we're going to be talking about some specific scenes and specific themes uh, from from the film, and then we'll we'll segue into uh, uh, our episodes, which focus much more on the third film um, and uh, begin the riddles then as well. So that is the plan. <laughs> All right. Well, with that in mind, then I want to begin uh, the. Um, the the sort of the theoretical discussion portion. The thing I want to I want to start with is I I, I want to address because I I feel like one of the things which for me has been most fascinating about um, the whole this whole season of response to the desolation of Smaug is that I I kind of realized a couple days ago. You know, I've been talking about the film. I keep talking about the film. I keep engaging in like you know. Twitter fights with people about the film, and and I realized, you know, it's actually been weeks since, since I've thought about the movie itself. The film itself has not been the topic of discussion for me at all. That's not been the main issue. For me, what this season has been about, more than anything else, has been really working through these theoretical issues. I have, I have, I, I mean, I have found this all really profitable, because this whole situation 
brought up by the Hobbit films in general, but really by The Desolation of Smaug in particular, has really drawn my attention to a bunch of theoretical questions that I think I had never really thought through thoroughly enough. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I approached, you know, if you guys have listened to my reactions episode that I released on the Tolkien Professor uh, feed, the reason I approached that the way that I did and started off with those sort of much more theoretical questions and approaches um, is, uh, is, is, is basically because uh, that's really where my focus has been. So one thing I, I wanted to address at first is there have been several people who have been expressing some irritation at me uh, 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 one way or another. Um, for constantly defending the films or attempting, in their words, to justify them. And, you know, thinking about that, you know, responding to that, I'm thinking, you know, really, I don't feel that way at all. I don't feel... I'm not trying to defend this film. I'm certainly not trying to defend Peter Jackson. Um, but I, but I, it basically, it sort of caused me to step back for a second and say, why is it that the negative reactions, that the majority of the negative reactions that I have seen to the desolation of Smaug annoy me so much, because they do. Um, You know, it's easy to understand why people would think that I am, like, enormously defensive on behalf of these films. That's not how I really feel, but I can see how it would look like that, because I have, in fact, been... uh, having very great difficulty restraining myself from responding to people who who uh who who are all negative about it but the reason um the reason for that as i've been thinking about it the reason that i am so invested in this this year is that i feel like the whole issue of not just of adaptation in general but of analysis and interpretation is like what is being attacked that is what i feel is being attacked um what i what what has been getting my goat about the critics uh, that, and I'm talking not about movie critics because not only do I not really care what they say, I don't really know what they're saying because I don't pay a lick of attention to them. But as far as Tolkien fans are concerned, um, what has been, what has been really getting my goat about a lot of Tolkien fan responses uh, to this film is that they're not thinking about the film. I see very little evidence of actual analysis of the film. Um, and that that tendency that that tendency to kind of switch off and say, you know, I don't like this. I think this is bad. Even and 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 the only justifications that I hear are justifications which are not based, as far as I can see, they're not based on any actual analysis of the film. Um, and that really bothers me. You know, I feel like, look, if you actually... In some, cor- in some cases, it's not even based on viewing the film. Right, exactly. It's not even based on viewing the film. It's it's like we, 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 have, a con- we have concept in it. You know, I don't need to hear anything else other than that there is like a, you know, an elf dwarf romance involved to know that this is a travesty of Tolkien's thought. Really? Right. Really? I, that's, I, you know, it's just... Anyway, so th- so that's what's really bothering me. Um, you know, when push comes to shove, there are, there are several things I don't like about the films, and we'll talk about those. And I, you know, we might wait until next time to talk about some of those specific things. Um, but again, to me, that's not the issue. To me, the issue is: Are you actually willing to sort of think this through? You know, one of the things that I um, am. Uh, that I've also been thinking about a lot is again. I think back to my own my own purest past uh back when i was especially when i was in high school (laughs) 
And what changed for me, the thing that changed for me, what, what, what converted me from being a purist was primarily reading medieval literature. Um, what I, one of the things that I discovered in medieval literature is how much fun it is. The, the medievals loved, more than anything else in literature, what they loved was taking a story and taking a tradition and retelling it and redoing it and revisiting it. And looking at things like, of course, the, the, the most obvious and, 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 and canonical example of this is the King Arthur story. You go and you look at all of the different King Arthur versions. Um, and these are not just like independent versions. You know, these are versions that are deliberately translating and adapting and working with each other. And you can have completely wildly different versions of the Arthurian story told by two authors in a very similar place and time, but who are just very interested in very different things and who are neither one of them showing more or less respect for the Arthurian tradition. That, that story is a story that was being retold not because people were being flippant or mercenary about it, but because they took it so seriously, because they loved it so much and they thought it was so important. Um, and... Basically, so so that was sort of the thing that really kind of opened my eyes when I realized, you know, it's even more fun than sitting back with my arms folded and saying tut tut, you know, and tisk tisk when I when I look at these things and 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 basically kind of, in you know, holding fast to my own previous ideas and the you know the the story and thing that I loved. Um, I could still have that thing. I didn't have to leave the story that I loved. I could I could still have that. But what I could also get is the pleasure of comparing and contrasting, of looking and seeing, you know, putting these two things next to each other and saying, you know, where do the differences really lie? What, you know, what kind of story is this person telling and through their telling of the King Arthur story? And what, you know, what is Mallory really interested to compared to what Chrétien de Troyes is really interested uh, in? You know, how is, especially ones that are really close, and, you know, it's. I mean, and basically, I found that um, when I started to do that, when I started to actually do careful analysis and compare and contrast, that like I just found that that was so much more fun than purism. That like that that kind of thing. I just you know I just eat on toast. I love that stuff, and that is the pleasure that I get from the Jackson films. And I say pleasure even in moments that are annoying. Like, again, going back to some Lord of the Rings film stuff that drive me bananas on one level, yet I find them really fascinating to think about, and they, they, they do nothing but increase my appreciation of Tolkien and the process of uh and the process of discussing the the similarities and differences and doing that analysis is is really it's it's a it's an enormous learning experience and it's really fun and i feel like that that process is more than anything else what i'm wanting to defend like and and what what is bothering me are the people who not only um who not only refuse themselves to engage in any kind of close analysis and really thoughtful comparison and contrast, but who are trying to shut it down, you know, who are trying to say, like, I don't want to hear anybody who says that these films are anything but a money grab. And, and I'm like, well, you know, no, I'm sorry. You can't say that, jerk. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to do that analysis, and that's okay. You know, and you're missing out. And the fact, if you want to miss out, you can miss out. But, you know, don't tell me it's not a legitimate thing to do. Yeah. So anyway, that's what's yeah, been really I, bothering me. Yeah, I agree because I, I was a. I in fact, I still remain 
kind of a purist about the Lord of the Rings films. I, I haven't tried to watch Two Towers recently, but but um, in the past, even in like even just a few years ago, I have trouble getting through, all the way through the Two Towers. Right. Um, uh, but but uh, I was watching. Um, uh, Teresa forced me to watch the Fellowship of the Ring a couple weeks ago, and uh, and I actually I noticed a lot of things. The things that used to really bother, like I don't watch it with the same knee jerk. Oh God, they, that's terrible. Oh God, they changed that. Blah blah. blah. I, I see myself going through the same process we've done with the Hobbit, looking and thinking, hmm, well that's an interesting choice. I wonder why they do that. And stuff. Right. Um, right. And and I, and I think. I think I think the thing that a lot of people are missing is that the, I, I guess for me, sort of, if I want to be a little bit crass about it, it's not it's not that I actually like the movies necessarily. Um, um, you know, I, I kind of do have enjoyed the Hobbit films, um, but but it really isn't a matter of me actually really liking the films. Like when, when um, sort of non-Tolkien. Uh, people press me on them. I, I often find myself. I I'm readily can dig up lots of criticisms, and it's clear there's parts of it that I don't think work very well. But right. but I, I, it's sort of a meta enjoyment, right? Like the the thinking about the films. Uh, I just enjoy thinking about the films. Like mm-hmm. uh, they have they have uh, you know sort of uh, putting them in relief against the books has helped me find new and deeper enjoyment of the books and other and other adaptations and just sort of the whole um uh environment around the books like the thing is without the films i don't know if we'd all be furiously discussing the books right now so right. so so setting aside whether the bo- books are any good or not it certainly has added to my enjoyment of things and right. I, and i can tell you some you know one thing i can tell you for sure you know for people out there who think like oh you guys are just making excuses for the films and stuff there is let me tell you I watched this. I went. Uh, I went to the L.A. Uh, Tolkien Society's toast to Tolkien last week, and I went and watched this film with with some of those folks. And there's a there's a pretty strong, unsurprisingly, a huge overlap between um, the L.A. Tolkien Society and the the staff of the OneRing.net. Right. Right. There are there is a universe apart of <laughs> of us and what we do and what we say about the films and what some of those folks are doing. Those folks just literally you can t- they just love the film. Mm-hmm. Like they just think they're perfect. These are masterpieces. Like every little thing I dug up about. Well, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. Even about the Lord of the Rings films, they didn't. They, didn't, they had almost no criticism. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the only criticisms they really had. I, I'm I'm making them kind of caricatures. I'm sort of a little hyperbolic. So if any of them are listening, I apologize. I'm not. I'm not I, I, don't, I don't mean to offend you, but but um, but. But like you know, the, the main criticisms I heard is they just weren't you know they weren't Peter Jackson enough. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like, well, there's a difference between there's a difference between that level of like enjoyment. Like, oh, these are just they're just great. Like, I I wouldn't say that. Yeah. I would say I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I mean, but really, I, <clears throat> exactly. Really, what we really enjoy is doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And and the thing is, I really do admire the films. I think that they are really thoughtful. Um, but yeah. that's a, but that's and exactly it's 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 that thing you know, it's it's that tendency of 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 some people to 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 you know to like accuse me of just like mindlessly defending the films. And I'm like, no, what I'm trying to defend the films against is mindlessness. Actually, like that's kind of the yes. whole point. Um, is that you know. And mindless enjoyment or mindless criticism. Or mindless criticism. And what I'm right. seeing but is what? mostly mindless criticism. Yeah, but mostly mindless criticism because mindless criticism is an, is an attempt to ruin enjoyment of them for other people, which yes. sucks. Yes. 
Yes. Um, it does. And, 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 and it's just, and, and again, it, it goes against everything, like all of the things that made me insufferably as a child, but effective as a teacher, um, are those things that just, I cannot stand to hear people talk that way. Like if to see people not thinking about something to see, you know, and, and to want to jump in and say, no, 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 no. Like let's, let's work through this together. Like, you, you know, the, the thing that you just said makes no sense. Don't you see that? Um, <laughs> you know that's uh, uh, that's that's why you know my goat has been gotten so often uh, in this whole desolation of Smaug's uh, um, thing because I feel like this has really this film has really pushed people into those camps. You know that there's 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 the uh, there's the mindless lovers and the mindless haters and not that much in the middle. Um, I mean I don't want to like over glamorize what we're doing at Riddles like in the Dark. Politics. But I, but I do feel like, you know, those, you know, the riddles in the dark people, and I, and I mean all of you who are listening and who have been following, those of you who enjoy the kind of thing we've been doing, I feel like are the only group of people, you know, like you are the kind of people who are, who, who are, who are in the middle, you know, who are doing neither one of those things. And that's... Yeah, you attempt to take a balanced view, you're going to get criticized by both sides, right? Exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly what's been happening. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's been really, so that, that element well, of it has been really frustrating, but... Uh, well, let me try yeah. an angle out with you guys. Trish, were um, you ever a purist? I don't think so. I actually, I I actually gave a paper last year on the evolution of the Hobbit. It was be, actually it was before uh, the first movie came out, so it was like I had to speculate based on what we'd been doing in Riddles in the Dark to talk about the adaptation piece. But part of the evolution of the Hobbit wasn't just Tolkien's writing. The last part of my paper had to do with its adaptation to stage and, and film, and so I was kind of trying to set a tone for the upcoming first movie. And there's a letter, and unfortunately, I don't have the number of the letter. Somebody out there probably can find it. It was written in 1958, and it was in response to a, a, a proposed film script for Lord of the Rings. Yes. And Tolkien went into a lot of detail about his feelings about adaptation. And, of course, I think at this point, too, judging what I've read, and Hammond and Skull actually has a nice, in the, their Tolkien, what's it called, the Companion? Um, oh, gosh, what's their two-volume thing called, Corey? I can't remember. The big uh, oh, reference. I, I the compa- think. Reader's Guide and the Companion, I think it is, right? The, the, the Hammond and Skull? Hammond and Skull. Yeah. Yeah, and it's their reader's guide. It's the Tolkien reader's guide. They have a section on adaptation, and they talk about history. And, in fact, my favorite story is that Humphrey Carpenter, who ended up being Tolkien's biography, did an egregious film uh, stage adaptation of The Hobbit that poor Tolkien sat and watched. And he actually had uh, Smaug being killed at the mountain. Can you imagine changing the script that to that degree, and you've got the author in the audience? Right. Anyway, <laughs> um, and he said because he felt it was better because it put the, the, that it more in the center of the action. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Oh my god. Anyway, um, Tolkien wrote. He actually even in the script for Lord of the Rings, he he was saying that he understood that there's stuff that needed to be cut, and but he said there's things that are part of the heart of the story and things that are not. And his the example that I use, which I think would surprise folks is that he said, for example, if you need to cut either the Ents or Helm's Deep, Battle of Helm's Deep, I would cut the Battle of Helm's Deep because it doesn't forward the story. You know, and to me, when I read that, it's like, well, he recognized, you know what I mean? He recognized, I thought, how would he thought the fact that Jackson kept both of them in um, and what he did to the Ents. But anyway, that's another story. So what he said, what he actually said in his letter, he, he wrote, the canons of narrative art in any medium cannot be wholly different. And the failure of poor films is often precisely in the exaggeration or in the intrusion of unwarranted matter 
owing to not perceiving where the core of the original lies. So not perceiving where the core of the original lies. I think that the way to really approach these adaptations, and I think I'm moving myself up to actually doing this maybe as a paper at some point, is using that as the yardstick, both yes. for Lord of the Rings and for The Hobbit. You know, now you can still debate that. People can still have disagreements as to whether Jackson stayed with the core of the original, you know, in both movies. But I think that's the valid conversation to have. Really. Exactly. That that, I, that that makes sense as a standard of evaluation. It's not about what has been changed or how much has right. been changed. And the, and again, this is what that is also exactly why. I am so resistant to people who want to have a knee jerk and 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 let me say you know, from the top, totally understandable knee-jerk reaction to the Toriel and Keeley thing is that my my, the, my 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 response to that, my objection to that is when I look at it, it I do find it consonant with the core. Um, you know, where it goes is exactly not. Um, it's it, it's it's exactly not filler. It's not extra to the story, and we'll talk about that. That's one of the things we'll talk about a little bit more next week. So we'll we'll get into we'll do some more detailed analysis and discussion of that. Um, but 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 exactly, you know, that's that that's really the question. And but but you have to do you have to be willing to take some deep breaths, get past your initial reactions, right. get past the superficial things, and really think about what is the core story that the film is telling. What is the core story that the book is telling and how do those two things compare that yeah and because that to me that is the standard that's exactly i mean imagine if there had been a film made while Tolkien was alive and the battle of helm's deep had been left out right what would the purists have said right <laughs> right well and, and because the thing is is that it, it's it's not just about purism in a in a purely snobbish form like you know i think that that especially Tolkien purists are very different from, like, say, extreme uh, uh, wine-tasting snobs, for instance. <laughs> you know, it's not like that kind of purism. Um, you know, it's it's not like someone who will look down their noses at you and say, oh, pff, how could you possibly hold your wine glass that way, you ignoramus? You know, it's not like that. <laughs> it's... It's it's instead it's instead. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm mentioning this because I just recently had had a house guest who was doing kind of things like that in 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 a, in a less insufferable way. But it's made me think of it. Anyhow, um, so the um, the, the but again, the the Tolkien purists. You think about the 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 Battle of Helm's Deep. If if he had cut the Battle of Helm's Deep, which is of course given Peter Jackson's own interests inconceivable, but if he had cut the Battle of Helm's Deep. People would have objected to that. I think not just for the like snobbish and dispassionate reason that it is that it differs from Tolkien, but from the much more understandable um, and much more to me admirable affection for the story. That is, I know I grew up loving the Battle of Helm's Deep. If I had to list, you know, my favorite passages in the Lord of the Rings for most of my life, the Battle of Helm's Deep would have been in my top three. And so, therefore. Um, I, it would have wounded me awfully to see a to see a film adaptation that just callously tossed aside the Battle of Helm's Deep because I loved it so much, and that's what I see again and again um, from Tolkien fans who are responding to these films. They are responding, um, you know, when they're responding to details, it's not just uh, it's not simply a purism thing, um, but rather a um, rather a like you are you have. Uh, cut out, changed, messed with something that I have really great affection for. 
You know, the other thing that I've mentioned actually too uh, before is the extended edition of uh, Unex- Unexpected Journey is very interesting, I think, to listen to because Boyens does explain some mm-hmm. of the decisions they made. And the interesting part was a lot of the stuff they explained were things we had actually brought up in Riddles in the Dark. Like, how, you know, how did they decide that? Or, you know what I mean? It's like, she, it was almost as if they'd been listening and she was, like, explaining to us why they decided. Right. And I, again, you may not agree with Boyens and it may be the wrong, they maybe made the wrong decision, um, especially if you're using this yardstick of the Accord of the Original. But I, I think that, that people need to listen to that. If people are really going to, like, seriously engage with this topic, that's a that's a must-listen to. And I would imagine they're going to probably do the same with the director's commentary on the second um, second extended edition, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, no, uh, Noam Weiss says, purists love too much the work of somebody else's hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We said Olmo after those guys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where's Tuor when you need him? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's and and again, I I don't want to. You know, the last thing I want to do is just sound totally unsympathetic for somebody who who feels like that. Again, I would have felt the same way about Helm's Deep. The last thing I am trying to convince any anybody of is to have you know less affection for and less attachment to you know the stuff that are in the books you know the stuff that you love in the books there's nothing wrong with that at all um but you know but you have to realize that it's sort of a different thing this this reminds me of a a a sort of a broader issue um another criticism that i've seen a bunch of tolkien people say you know in their reviews or assessments of the film they will say with great gravity this really this is not tolkien's hobbit this is really just not Tolkien's Hobbit. <laughs> and my response is, well, of course not! What did you expect? I mean, of course, no, this is Peter Jackson's adaptation of Tolkien's Hobbit. You're not going to get Tolkien's Hobbit on film. And again, see, this is where, you know, Trisha comes back to what you were saying about the core, right? Um, if you want right. to say that the core is different, well, I mean, I think you have to, you have to, you have to dig a little deeper to be able to say right. the core has shifted in various ways right. away from the core of the Hobbit. That I actually don't find to be true of the films. I find the core of the Hobbit films um, very much, um, at least, you know, not, not not identical with the core of Tolkien's films, but or of Tolkien's books, but really dealing with them, re- really really engaging with the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, to, 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 by point of contrast, the, the Rankin-Bass films, and it's really easy to bash on the Rankin-Bass films because they're, they've, they've aged in some really weird ways. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, but it doesn't stay as true, don't you think? It not at really all. The core, of, the core of that film, although it is, you know, that film is in some ways exactly what everybody says they want and says they're disappointed they haven't gotten from the Peter Jackson films. That is to say, a film adaptation which really just does the book and doesn't try to bring in any of the Lord of the Rings perspective things, almost any. Um, the the Rankin-Bass just, just does the published book, mostly. But the core of that film, I mean, the things that they miss and where they end up putting the focus... Um, especially the way that they do, uh, 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 you know, their and, and I understand, you know, in the times it was the mid seventies. You're still in the immediate, you know, Vietnam War era. I, 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 I can I can sympathize with all of that. But they put this really heavily anti-war message into the end of the Hobbit. Um, 
you know, the Battle of Five Armies becomes a criticism of of, of war entirely, um, and all of the. I mean, I mean, and 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 therefore, you know, in my mind, when I watch the end of the of the of the Rankin Bass film, I feel like the the you know the themes of the book have been utterly eviscerated in the way that they've treated. Uh, in, in the way that they've treated the story, um, and they have taken the core and they've shifted it into a completely different direction, um, and um, and 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 you know and and you know so like the, the two things that annoy me most about the Rankin Bass film are the ending and the um, the the stupid uh, Glenn Yarborough theme song at the beginning. <laughs> And if it were just how dare you? If it were just anno- if it were just annoying, I could deal with it. But again, it's 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 the thematics of it. It's 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 annoying when you hear it. When you actually sit down and think it through, it becomes infuriating. Um, yeah, the whole yeah, exactly, Scott. The greatest adventure yeah. song. That's precisely what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but but I I I want to uh, uh, you know so so anyway I, again I, I feel like. People who are expecting Tolkien's Hobbit have are 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 doubly fooling themselves. Like I, I feel like the fact that that expectation has been disappointed that's that's not a Peter Jackson story. That's a story about the critic. You know, like why why on earth were you expecting that? Why is that even a question that you're asking yourself? First of all, again, it's an adaptation. Second of all. Presenting Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, or projecting projecting Tolkien's The Hobbit, you know Peter Jackson projecting Tolkien's The Hobbit, the book alone is never the project he undertook. You know people keep wanting to declare the films a failure because they don't succeed in doing the thing they never even attempted to do, and and that's another <laughs> thing that 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 again just kind of drives me around the bend sometimes about this stuff, um, and and it's. Uh, um, I just, I just love hearing Craig get so. <laughs> Can you tell I've been bottling this up? You know, this is, this is like, this is like me letting out all of like I, all of those times I haven't responded to people on Twitter. Um, hey, did, yeah. Hey, did you see? Uh, did you see Erica Smith's comment? Uh, I no, I'm I missed more it. Critical of, I think I'm more critical of Desolation of Smog because of engaging with the text through the whole last year of Riddles in the Dark. Yeah. See. We we yeah, actually increased criticism of the film, right. people. How can we be apologists? Yeah, sure. No, exactly. And and I, and that and 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 Erica, I respect that. You know, and we can have respectful discussions about that. Um, and there are many ways, you know, in which I am I am certainly willing to be convinced. If you know, if people want to, you know, through the course of our analysis and through further analysis, people want to make arguments that my initial reading is my you know my initial reading of the Desolation of Smaug. I've still only seen it twice. Um, my initial reading of the Desolation of Smaug is is that you know by and large the core of it lines up pretty well with the core of the Hobbit. But I could be convinced yeah. otherwise. Well, you know, you made a really good point, Corey, in your in your two-parter, which you maintained a much more level degree of emotion, and I want to acknowledge. Then, you know, but but I'm glad you saved it for Riddles in the Dark. I think that's appropriate. <laughs> um, you you made a really good point that I have been engaging myself with since I heard you say it, which is, you know, you went back even to the Lord of the Rings movies. There are part, even the parts we don't like, and you know. I said to Corey earlier, it's hard to, you know, people can't like function. They don't get it when you say, oh, I like these parts. I didn't like these parts. It's kind of like people want to be digital about these movies. 
But the, even the parts you didn't like, like like Faramir, for example, in Lord of the Rings, yes, it gives you the opportunity to go back and say, why is it this bothers me? Yes, It allows you to go back to the books and do a deeper reading and a deeper analysis of Tolkien's writing because of your, re- your negative reaction to the, to the film, to that part of the film. I really liked that. I mean, that almost makes it worth watching even if you hate the whole movie. Yes. Because it allows you to go back and really go, okay, this is why. This is why. Because, you know, the story that Tolkien wrote is X, Y, Z. And, you know, this theme didn't get dealt with or whatever. Exactly. Thinking carefully about the scenes, especially in the Lord of the Rings films, that I disliked most have been some of the things that have brought me most long-term profit from the Lord of the Rings films. In -hmm. exactly that way. Um, And certainly I have found, you know, and I I would say doubly so um, as a teacher. Um, and being able to, to, to have the films as both a point of contrast and a point of entry uh, for students um, has, has made those even doubly, to me, profitable. And if you think about it, like, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm so glad your book came out before the movie came out, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody can say that you wrote that book, you know, in any kind of collusion. <laughs> right. But, like, one of the points you make in your book is about how clueless the dwarves are. Yes. How totally clueless. Thorin and everybody is totally clueless. Can you imagine if Jackson had stayed true to that piece of the book yeah. in the movie? Yeah. Oh, my God. It, Which they kind of did in Rankin-Bass, actually. Yes. Yes, they do. They do. Um, and it's... it's um, Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 I agree. I think that... Um, and even, you know, Trish, even thinking about what you were saying about... Um, you know, binary responses, um, you know, people just sort of wanting to, you know, hate the whole movie or, or, yeah. or love the whole movie. You know, I think that, that that can even happen within individual things that you like and dislike, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're yes. willing to go further than, like, like, again, to come back to the Faramir example, um, I really, I really, you know, I mean, I'm certainly one of the people who finds Faramir one of the things that that's hardest to get over in the Two Towers film. And yet, I can recognize the fact that, I, you know, I feel like there are really two elements of Faramir's character that are kind of at play for me when I'm watching Peter Jackson's Faramir. Um, one is the thing that I'm losing, which is the stature of Faramir and the way, the the role that Faramir plays in the book. Faramir is like... Welcome to Gondor. You know, the, he is like the vision of what Gondor means. When you meet Faramir and get to know Faramir, you know, you come to appreciate what the, you know, the Numenorians in Middle... What, what, what the Numenorians mean to Middle-earth. You know, I mean, he is... He, he helps us to get in touch with the high tradition. If we hadn't met Faramir already in Book 3... Uh, or, sorry, in book four, when we get to Minas Tirith in book five, I think the whole thing would have less impact because we've seen, we've already gotten a window on the west in Faramir himself. Um, that element got excised from Faramir uh, in the film. However, the part of Faramir that he did play up, the, like the, you know, what that was, that, what that appeared primarily to be sacrificed for in the film was the treatment of Faramir's relationship with his father and, to a lesser extent, with his older brother. Um, And, you know, wanting to play up the Faramir as, you know, insecure younger son who is striving for the love of his father, whose favorite was his older brother. Um, And the fact is, that's there in Tolkien, too. 
And while at the same time I came to appreciate the role of Faramir in the book more for the things that were removed from it uh, in the film, so too the things that Peter Jackson emphasized, the thing that Peter Jackson emphasized in Faramir's character, that is Faramir's daddy issues, actually prompted me to look more carefully at the way in which Faramir's daddy issues are in fact present in the book. And I do think that that's actually a very interesting and important element. And I come back, um, you know, one way that that impacted me, re- uh, thinking carefully about Peter Jackson's Faramir enriched for me, not just my reading of Faramir earlier on, but my reading of Faramir in the Houses of Healing in his conversation with Eowyn. Um, because thinking of Faramir only as like that bastion of high lofty nobility that we see, and that's a really important part of him, um, and to, to, to see you know him coming alongside Eowyn in the conversation they have, but to see him looking at her and the level of compassion and pity he can have, on one level, what Tolkien gives us in Faramir and Eowyn are two people who have both experienced loss and both been in a similarly kind of, not not, not exactly the same kind of trapped position, but that there's much more resonance. He is somebody who can really relate to, like, the brokenness of her life that she, that has led her to the place where she is. And that element of Faramir, Peter Jackson really emphasized. Again, I feel like, in the end, the cost was too high for that. Uh, In Peter Jackson's film, I'm still not defending Faramir. But... um, but again, you know, so even within that one particular element, you know, I, I, I found that if I try not to be too binary about it, um, it's actually, it just, it leads to more interesting stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway. Now, um, Kate made a really, Kate Neville made a really good point a while back, and she said she really believes that it's not truly fair to judge the changes and choices that Jackson and company have made until we see the entire arc. Yes. She actually points out the other way, which is there are parts of the fellowship that she didn't mind at, the, at first, but after, after seeing all three, then she found, you know, she went back and found those pieces disappointing. So that can move both ways. You yes. Know, you, could, you could resolve some issues, but then again, you could also have some issues by seeing the arc. But I do agree. I mean, I think we'll have... You know, our our conversation this time next year will be, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, looking at the entire three story arc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's fair. I'll, I will. I, the the one th- the one pushback I would give to that, uh, living in the land of uh, living in La La Land out here, and and, <laughs> um, and you know, having a wife working in the industry and all of her friends is, I imagine what some of them would say is. I, there's there's sort of a, a growing annoyance um, amongst the creative types here at uh, the idea that like you know oh no no look this film's the first of uh, this film's all part of a trilogy and you really can't judge it or say anything about it until you've seen all of them there's there's a certain resistance to that notion from right. from folks out here who are like for God's sake, can't somebody just make a movie? Like, can't people just make a complete start to end? You don't need to go watch the extended edition. You don't need to watch four other movies. Blah blah blah. And I do, I do think that I, I do think that criticisms about individual films, you know, that are that are leveled at like, look, I just feel like I feel like this particular film didn't have a coherent story. Blah blah blah. I think those are fair. Like, yes. at the end of the day, they should be making good individual films yes. in addition to making a great adaptation and a great trilogy and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. Agreed. I, I, yeah, I do definitely agree with that. Um, 
Or at least I understand that notion. There's part of me that doesn't really care. I'm going to watch all three. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Um, but no, I mean, I, I get, that's, I mean, the same is true of books. You know, I mean, if you have, if you have a, a, you know, book one of a series, which is as itself totally unsatisfying as a book because it's, it's, it's not really conceived of as a separate book, but is just like a part of a story which breaks off in the middle, like a, you know, like a serial novel from the 19th century published in magazines or something like that. Um, well, that's not really very satisfying. You know, that, then, then I would say that's a blemish in that book. Um, if you're going to have a series of, of, of sort of, you know, it, it, it should stand on its own. There should be some, some kind of reward to reading yeah. <laughs> that book on its own. And, I, and I, I, suppose, I suppose there's limits to that, right? Like, if you're writing an ongoing series, I mean, you know, it's just like, let, let's face it reading the return of the king without reading the first two or reading without, <laughs> sure. or, or, or even worse reading one of george R. R. martin's later novels um uh without having read any of the earlier ones i mean you just you know you know like it's it, it, the harry harry potter suffers from this increasingly as the series goes on increasingly right? like first yes book, oh, yeah. the first couple of books have this really nice tight arc and then the later books is just yeah. All so the so there's limits to that and I, even that like there's limits to, to how far you can take that criticism. But, yeah, no, but, it's it's not that I would argue that you should be able to pick up book 5 in any series and read it satisfyingly as a book on its own. Um I and I, I I I I wouldn't say that. But um but as far as having having each book be enjoyable in itself um and and having some level of satisfaction in it um, I mean, I think it's one of the things that when well, here, I, here I get into dangerous ground because we get into we we move towards the later George R. R. Martin books that I haven't read yet. But the main criticisms that I've heard about book four and book five is that they increasingly um, get away from that level of satisfaction. That like you don't feel mm-hmm. like the story has begun and ended at all. Like that there's th- and and that there's a sense of progress in the overall thing. That's what I've that's what I've heard from people who have who have read those um and i can you know that's that's what i think is a little bit more of a of a of a blemish um one other one, are we anywhere are we are we in in even like the the same um uh are we in even the same hemisphere as our schedule absolutely yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah i wouldn't worry about it dave we're good uh, i'm keeping track we're good. Believe okay, me. all right. We're good. You will you will encounter the ire of Trish if, That's if right. it goes over. Trish is going to be our timekeeper. She's going to she's right. she's she's going to In fact, I think we should get Trish a uh we should somebody should lift for us the sound effect of the whip crack from where there's a whip there's a way. <laughs> Uh, I was going to be nicer. I have a and, I have a and, Tibetan singing bowl that makes a nice ring, and I was going to I was going to use. That. No, I think a whip crack is really what we need. Is it a whip crack you as know, a warning. Where there's a whip. <laughs> there's okay, a well, way. I might be able to do that actually. Yeah, yeah, I think we should do that. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, uh, yes, um, the other theoretical issue I wanted to raise, because this is something, again, this is something I've been reflecting on further since my, uh, my Tolkien professor episode. Um, and, and, and I've decided this is a momentous occasion. I'm going to coin a word today. This is, this is, I've been thinking about this. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. 
No, no, no. We only get to coin one word a day, and I already did. Meta, meta enjoyment. Yeah, well, that was that your, was your word. word. That was your word. I've got oh, one. Oh, yeah. Okay, you can coin one, too. I yeah, guess. I'm, I'm going to coin one, too. Okay. Um, and it, 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 it relates to the general... The, 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 uh, the thing that people have been saying, certainly, and especially ever since the, the whole three-film announcement was made uh, back in 2012 um, that you know all of this stuff is just a money grab or, or you know they're doing this just to appeal to one thing or the other and I talked about this in my in my in my episode my earlier episode and the main thing just to do a very brief recap that's that's where I was quoting CS Lewis's on criticism and you know to summarize that is simply um, Lewis C.S. Lewis pointing out that one of the things that critics do very often, which is a very, very sloppy habit to get into as a critic, is first noticing that there is some kind of blemish. You know, that there's something bad, there's something you don't like, there's something that you think is bad about a work of art. And instead of thinking about what makes it bad and, you know, what, what you know, instead of actually stopping and really doing analysis of the work of art at that point... Um, to try to point to in what its badness consists, um, to instead leap to making a fictional narrative about the author um, and to making claims about what the author was or was not thinking or did or did not do. And, you know, in particular, the kinds of examples that C.S. Lewis uses uh, in that essay, again, this is C.S. Lewis's essay on criticism, uh, which you can find in his book, the uh, collection of his essays called Of Other Worlds, if you're interested. Um, But um, what what C.S. Lewis talks about is particularly when somebody says, oh, this was really rushed, or or, or they'll say, you know, this this seemed like a really half-hearted essay. And C.S. Lewis, you know, says, you know, I've heard people call this one essay in a collection that I wrote, um, you know, half-hearted and just filler, when in fact I know, as a point of historical fact, that was the one that I cared most about, and that I was most invested in, and for me it was the center of the entire collection. And then he pauses and says, now, I agree with people when they say that it is the worst of the pieces. Like, I agree with them that it is bad. You know, there are things about that essay that are not good, it does not work very well. I failed in the writing of it. But merely to say, to, 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 instead of saying, let's actually look at it and think about it and say what, you know, what is bad about it and what can we learn from that, to just dismiss it and to dismiss it with a fiction about the author that you're guessing at and haven't the faintest idea if you're right or not, is simply laziness. That is simply the avoidance of analysis. It's not analysis at all. And this keeps coming up for me again and again and again with responses to the desolation of Smaug. Oh, this is just a money grab. Apart from the whole fact that almost every artist in the history of the world has worked for money, um, the, 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 the larger point to me is you're not, when you say that, you've stopped doing analysis at all. Now you're just create you you are writing fiction about what is going on in the mind and motivations of the artists of the people involved. And you know what? You're guessing and you might be wrong and even if you're right, what do we learn? What what how does that help us in any way? To do that is to simply avoid it. So here's my word. Um we we already have the word fan fiction. Right, fan fiction is the imaginative investment in somebody else's 
created world, right? So if you're going to write a story which takes place in somebody else's creative world and deals with their character, you're going to imaginatively invest yourself in someone else's story and write your own story within that world, that's fan fiction. Um, to do this, uh, to, to, to invest your, to, to create a fictional story about why an author did something or what the author's motivation was or what was going on in their author's head, that's crit fic. That's, that's crit fiction. That's my new word. Um, so my, one of my, one of my take home messages from today, beware crit fiction. Cause the thing is fan fiction you know, people people always uh, uh, and in very knee jerk fashion uh, fashion are, are are very dismissive of fan fiction. And I would say again, speaking as a medievalist, there is uh, there is an enormously dignified pedigree for fan fiction. Um, some of the best works of literature in the Western canon um, could be classified as fan fiction. Um, uh, as for instance, uh, I don't even know what percentage of uh, of Shakespeare's works could be classified as fan fiction uh, if you if you define it in the way that I did. Um, but again, that's that's so so fan fiction can be dreadful, but the the actual the actual intellectual and imaginative exercise of fan fiction I find respectable. In fact, that's true. It, it originates in love. Yeah. And 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 actually contains artistic expression. I mean, it can be a vehicle for artistic expression. I mean, it, it, it can be a perfectly uh, valid and interesting uh, imaginative uh, exercise to invest yourself in. And it's you can you can again like you know you, heck you could you could classify Virgil as fan fiction for crying out loud. Um, but crit fiction is utterly unrespectable. Um, I, I find no justification for crit fiction um, under almost any circumstances, um, I, and it, because just by its nature. So what's our what's our what's our technical definition of crit? Fiction? Okay, crit fiction is creating a fictional narrative about the author's process of writing or the author's oh, motivations yeah. for writing. So when you cease to, when you when you first observe. That uh, that uh, that a work is you know you dislike something you you disapprove of something you, you you think that there's something bad about a film or a book or something like that and instead of doing analysis of it you you instead substitute for that analysis a fictional account of what you guess was probably going on in the mind of the author or what motivated the author to write that bad thing. And in this sense, author, I, you're talking about is Jackson. Grab. Right, exactly. And you're talking about Jackson, really, in this. So, in this, when yes, for in, author, you mean Jackson? Right, right? I, I mean the the, uh, the whoever the artist in question, because I think it it, yeah. it, it happens all over the place. It happens right. talking about films. It happens talking about fiction. It happens talking about art. Um, uh, so, and 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 the thing is, it you know, when I say you are inventing a fiction, it's really subtle because it's not like you have to tell a story. You can do crit fic in a single word. Again, Lewis was giving examples of this. If you if you call something rushed, that's not analysis. That's critfic. You know, you're 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 not actually doing analysis of the text. You are saying in that one word, um, uh, you know, a fictional narrative of the process of the author's writing. Um, so uh, so anyway, so that's that's something that I think is um, is always. At the least sloppy. Now the thing is, and this is again 
something that C.S. Lewis was emphasizing in that in that in that essay. This is not only tremendously easy to do, it's tremendously difficult to avoid. His, uh, one of the things he was recognizing was that our critical vocabulary is just peppered with words, which are fundamentally critic words. Um, and, uh, and it's hard to avoid. Um, and I know that I don't myself successfully avoid it uh, at, at all times. I'm often guilty. Um, but... Um, but anyway, I, I, I do think, you know, so Finley asks, can't writing be rushed in and of itself? No. Writing can have a quality which might make you think the author was rushed when writing it. But again, the, in, in, in speaking of that particular uh, example, um, and again, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis here because again, this, I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to take credit for thinking of this idea. This was C.S. Lewis's concept. Um, I'm just giving it the name. Um, you came up with a catchy word. Exactly. I came up with a catchy <laughs> word. So therefore, C.S. Lewis and I are like on a level here. We've now co-created this thing. Because um, he thought of all the substance and I'm marketing it. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, Finley, thinking about that, because basically his argument, again, um, thinking as a critic of criticisms of the of the books that he wrote you know he someone would criticize a passage in the chronicles of narnia and say that it was rushed and he would know that in fact he'd labored over it that you know that that had been one that he had spent days working on and so to call it rushed is simply flatly inaccurate instead he says however if you want to talk about you know the quality of the prose or the quality of the story there, there, there probably is something wrong. There probably is something that doesn't work well in that passage. But don't just call it rushed, which is, which is whether or not you're thinking about it explicitly, merely a guess about the composition process. Instead, do more analysis of that passage. It's a, what, yes. what are its qualities that make you think the author rushed when writing it? Um, right. And, and, and that is a really productive, you know, when you make yourself pause and think about that, um, it, it's a it's a it's a really productive exercise because you find, in fact, that so many of the terms that we use, so much of the of the of the criticisms we have and objections we have, are really intellectually sloppy. In fact, um, and it really presses us to think more carefully about this stuff. So anyway. Um, <laughs> Tyson says it seems that uh, I have come to uh, uh, to despise uh, crit fiction in all its forms as soon as I became old and wary enough to, to detect its presence. Uh, yes, yes, uh, I think I think Boy, these, I think that that's these true. Listeners are pretty amazing. <laughs> these guys are amazing. Yeah, um, you know, uh, Timothy Fisher yeah, I was asking. Also, so, uh, just let me ask sure, you, so another sure. example would be. Um, I think I have said this on record. And we're, we're going to be talking about the action, action of violence as a theme later, so I don't want to get too far into it. But, I mean, I've said, I think, a number of times when we've talked about these two movies, I brought up the, the, uh, you know, the thing about demographics. And I suppose that's a subset of money grab, I suppose, right? Where, yes. where my conjecture is that Jackson may be trying to please a particular segment of the audience. Yes. That's also kind of critfic, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Yep. That is, yeah. that is critfic. That, that absolutely is not. Now, again, that... We're not banning it in all. We're not banning it altogether, right? What we're no, no, saying no. is don't sub, don't substitute it for thoughtful analysis. Well, I think it gives me the opportunity. If I have that that opinion, then I it's up to me to defend it. And I think that's what you're saying, right? right? I mean, I need to go. Yes and no. Analysis. Yes and no. What I would say is the obs- to 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 say that yes, that statement is a crit fix statement is not to say that your observation is invalid. 
but right. rather to push it further and say, okay, um, I, I do not find it acceptable just to say he was trying to appeal to teenage boys in this scene. We don't know if he and was trying to appeal it. to teenage boys yeah. in that scene. Right. Instead, tell me what it is about that scene that makes you think right. it was trying to appeal to teenage. Right. Th- th- there is something. Th- there is something there that you are observing. Dig further until you can really point Got to it. what it is uh, that it. you are that you are pointing. That's where that's that's where I think the avoidance of critfic is uh, is so valuable um, because it really pushes us to do that. Now, um, Alex, uh, to to. Uh, two comments here from our listeners. Um, Alexander was saying, it's almost impossible to stop ourselves from committing both fan fiction and crit fiction. I agree. Um, and But that, I think, is exactly the line that we need to walk in a very self-conscious way. Um, because it's easy to start doing one or the other. When you're doing criticism, it's easy to start doing fan fiction. This is especially true of Tolkien. When people keep asking me speculative questions which Tolkien never answered, you know, to be able to say, you know, what do I think about, you know, uh, uh, what do I think orc women are like? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't think we ever met an orc woman. I have no data upon which to base this d- uh, directly. However... We can speculate based on other things that he said, but when we're doing this, we're crossing a line into fan fiction. Now, even though we're doing analysis, we are now basically imaginatively investing ourselves in Tolkien's world and essentially writing our own little stories. Now, I don't find that totally invalid. I don't think that should never happen. I think, in fact, that that kind of exercise... This is why I think that fan fiction is highly defensible. As, as both a creative and even a critical activity, um, whereas crit fiction I don't find defensible um, uh, in almost any manifestation, because crit fiction is the unwillingness to engage. Fan fiction usually is engaging, and when it's doing well, it's engaging and often in very thoughtful ways with the text. And that, I think, is cool. Sometimes it's over-engaging. Sometimes it's over-engaging. Right, exactly. Um, but anyhow, so I... I, I so, so anyway, we do have to be careful when we're doing analysis not to just blindly cross over into fan fiction. But again, where I, what, what I think is important there is to be conscious when we're crossing the line, to know the difference uh, and to be explicit about the difference between when we're inventing and when we're um, interpreting. Are you hearing that? Which? Can you hear that? The whip crack? Oh, no, I can't. I couldn't. Okay. Well, I'm I'm it's, I'm trying to get my my microphone close up to my speaker. Unfortunately, I, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um. <laughs> I think what I probably ought to do is do a cut of the actual song. Uh, I'm only saying it's twenty after the hour, and yep. I want to make sure if we want to end it at half. Yeah. Well, know, well half we did st- we uh, we did start about ten minutes in, we so did. we can but we can but but yeah, we should we've got about fifteen minutes left. Let me. And of course, in my case, I'm worried uh, about my bad my computer battery giving out. So yeah, yeah. Did you see uh, Did you see David Rowe's uh, poem that he that he tweeted at us? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I'll read it on the air. Don't be a hater or a puristic. Jackson is a traitor, baiter. Be a tolerator. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, David Rowe did the fantastic presentation on Proverbs at MythMoot. Yeah, yeah, it was great to meet David at MythMoot this year. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. What do we have have on our schedule that we absolutely need to get to? Uh, Oh, Oh, actually, we're doing fine. You left it 
thankfully wide open. Yeah, James said if Trisha's battery gives out, we can go off schedule all we want, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I well, did. I we did have. We we don't. I mean, we can continue this conversation. I mean, partly I was just testing it because it was meant to sort of just be a you know let's be mindful of time. But but I pretty much when Corey and I talked about what we wanted to talk about today, I said, well, that could basically take up the whole, yeah, the yeah. whole episode. Yeah, it really can. <laughs> um, I, I, I wanted to address one more thing because I started to, and I don't want to leave him hanging. Timothy Fisher had made, uh, had asked two really interesting questions, and he said, is there good crit fic that is motivated by love of the author or of the work? Um, no. I would say no. Uh, there could be meta crit fic, which is to say, this person is only doing crit fiction because he really loves Tolkien's work. In which case, I'm doing crit fiction of the person who's doing crit fiction, um, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Uh, Talk about meta. Exactly. Meta. Exactly. That's totally meta, man. Um, but again, <laughs> the, the point is that crit fiction in this way, um, like the, the way that I'm defining crit fiction is it's something that I find always bad. That is, it is always lazy. It is by definition um, uh, the, 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 the avoidance of analysis of a text in order simply to speculate, guess, or make blanket assumptions or assertions about the author, about things you don't know. Um, and, and, and frankly, even if you did know, they wouldn't matter. Uh, again, to be, even if we knew for a fact, even if, even if Peter Jackson said, yeah, really, actually, I don't care about anything in this film, uh, the whole thing from beginning to end, I was only thinking in the most coldly mercenary way possible what was, what was likely to make me the most money. And every single choice I made at every point was, was, was motivated by that question alone. Even if he said that, and we believed him, that wouldn't affect my interpretation of the film at all. That is to say, I, I, I wouldn't care. Um, because, in fact, I have heard authors say not exactly that, but say things like, oh, no, like, I don't think this, you know, my book is really, you know, about this idea. And I'll, and I'll just look at what they say and I'll say, you know what, I think you're crazy. I think you don't understand your book at all. And, you know, we'll have to agree to disagree about your book. I often agree to disagree with authors about their book. There are a bunch of things I disagree with Tolkien about, about his book. Um, uh, so, I mean, especially Tolkien's later thoughts. Um, oh, Kate Neville just hit one, a crit fic that I just, it just gets my blood boiling. The one about, oh, Tolkien hated women because there's so few female characters. Yes. That is just oh, so, 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 so inaccurate. Yes. That is like, no, anybody who says that has not even bothered to learn anything about Tolkien at all. Yes. I mean, that's just awful. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's fine. I think it's perfectly fair. Maybe this is, this is where you see a fine distinction it's perfectly fair to bemoan the lack of female right. characters sure. Absolutely. In, his, in his writing. It's it's perfectly fair to read his works and come away with the with the with with the sort of impression that these works seem anti-women or feel misogynistic to you as you read them. But it's when you jumped from that to Tolkien the person obviously hated women yes. uh, or dismissed them that that's when you uh, that's when you uh, stray into crit fig. Right, exactly, and especially again, the, the 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 purest the purest critfic argument would be, Tolkien didn't include any women in the Hobbit because he hates women. Yeah, right. That's critfic. Now, yes. now what Dave said earlier is not critfic. It's like, gosh, it, you know, I noticed there's not very many female characters in Tolkien, and um, this doesn't this doesn't appeal to me as much because right. I don't enjoy reading as much because there aren't, which is which is fine. That's not because now you're making it about yourself. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Exactly. No, like, uh, doing an analysis. Right. D- doing analysis <laughs> is good, and you can come, You can you know by all means let's make let's 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 make uh, let's make you know do readings and 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 have arguments about it, um, and uh, and that's and that's fine. But um, but again, I think there could be positive crit fic too. Couldn't there be? In other words, you 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 could attribute. Oh yes. Oh, absolutely. You know, yes. Motivations to 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 support that you like Jackson's movies, but it could be just as fictional as absolutely the negative stuff. Absolutely. No, no, no. That's that is clearly. Um, um, and you know, yeah. And 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 it's not always it's not always the critics' faults in a sense. Um, the the creators themselves sometimes. Uh, 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 lead us down the, 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 the garden path to doing this. When, when, when um, Philip Aboyans or Peter Jackson come and say, well, we had a Toriel because we felt we needed more female characters and we wanted the film to appeal more to, to female viewers, then, then it's sort of, you know, like uh, they're basically setting a trap for us, leading us in the direction of, of thinking about the, when we yeah. watch Toriel instead yeah. of just enjoying Toriel as a character. We're thinking, well, this is the character they added because they said they needed to have more female characters. Yes. You know, like, and can I tell you something? So, this is why yes. reading the work of dead authors and preferably long dead authors, I find so much nicer. <laughs> Yes. I get really annoyed by living authors, actually, so many times, um, and 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 often, you know, <laughs> for instance. But yeah, no, I mean, like basically, because authors can't help but draw attention to themselves and their own motivations. You know, when you hear an author talk about their own work and what they did, they're going to talk about what they were thinking. They're going to talk about what they want you to think about it. And that's okay. But yes, you're right, Dave. That lines us up to be doing, um, both prompts us to think in those terms. And even frankly, um, if, if somebody says, we introduced the character of Toriel, you know, if, when Boyan says, we introduced the character of, of, of Toriel because we wanted there to be more female characters and we wanted to increase the female presence... Okay, but you know what? That shouldn't actually influence my interpretation of Toriel at all. I should still be looking at the work of art on its own ground and say, you know, let, let us look about the character of Toriel and what was actually accomplished, not intended, but accomplished in the depiction of the character of Toriel. Because, see, that's the problem um, with authors. When they tell us what they meant, they might have meant it. But the question is, did they do it? You know, did they succeed in doing it? Um, uh, and again, this gets back to another another C.S. Lewis distinction, the very important distinction between the meaning of the story and the intention of the author. Sometimes the author, right. you know, sometimes those two things are very different. Um, uh, you know, you can, and, and, and that, that can mean a complete failure. You know, like somebody who, uh, who says, uh, you know, um, you wrote, you know, Somebody says, oh, I thought your book was really funny. And the author's like, actually, I didn't intend it to be funny at all. I was completely serious all the way through. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a failure. That, that, that author failed. That doesn't necessarily mean the result was bad. You know, it might be a perfectly good comic work, but the author didn't realize it was comical. And so, therefore, they failed to achieve their vision. Their, you know, their intention was not manifested in the work. Now, that's a really, that's a really crude example. But, but again, to me... It's kind of interesting to hear from the author what were they thinking about? What did they intend? What were the, what were the most important things to them? What kind of things were motivated them? But at the end of the day, that's not the same thing as actually looking at the work. 
Um, Faye, Faye, I think her last name is Rivar or Ravar, mm-hmm. pointed out something that both Dave and I agreed with violently. Um, I, she, she says, she asked, does a biological interpretation of Tolkien's work fall under critic? Is this Biographical, the allegorical, yes. yes. Or allegorical reading that he detests so much? And you've talked about this at length in, in a number of your lectures about how knowing what he went through in the war, for example, may be interesting, but it doesn't necessarily change how you read his book. Right. Right? right. I mean, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, people saying, oh, it was his first world war is, you know, ex- you know, transferred to the dead marshes. Not, let's right. be careful about right. that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I agree. Now, one, um, uh, Faye, one way in which I would say that some of those biographical interpretations differ from what I am calling critfic is that they are rather, conc- that is, sometimes it's not a question of people making guesses or assumptions about what was going on in Tolkien's life and using those as, you know, sort of reasons or explanations of what's in the text, but the other way around. That is, people who read the text in order to draw conclusions about Tolkien's Mm. life. Um, And that's not exactly the same phenomenon. Um, Tolkien hated that, mostly because, again, he felt like any, any reading of a story which tosses the story aside and is really only interested in the psychology of the author is just, like, totally missing the point of stories. So but, I'm completely screwed with my master's thesis, right? About Galadriel and Tolkien's <laughs> thing. I mean, uh, you know, it's like, yeah. that's totally what I'm doing in my master's thesis. But Corey has been actually coaching me on how to walk the fine line on that. It's one. a fine line. It, it can be done. I mean, it's, it's, it's not it's just... about walking the fine line. It's not about avoiding it altogether. Yeah, right? Right. yeah, it is. It is. Um... Uh, Noam had a really good point. He said, I would say that crit fic can be developed into a fictional narrative all of its own. Yes, Noam, and in a couple of, uh, in a few instances, that has happened. Think about, for instance, and Dave will probably be able to think of, uh, I'm blanking on examples, but uh, of films that have depicted the story of an artist's work, right? You know, like, you know say a, a, a film which gives us the story of an of an artist or an author working on a book or a piece of art, um, mm-hmm. in a sense, you could say that whole story is critfic critfic taken into a narrative, right? Developed into a narrative, and that actually maybe you know maybe that's the one way in which you know, like basically if you take critfic far enough, if you actually develop a narrative which can itself interact with the work of art in some interesting ways. You know, maybe maybe there could be you know a place for that kind of thing. It's if it's sufficiently kind of developed. But um, okay, now I really am cracking the whip because we yep. do have some announcements to make. So we need to wrap this wrap this puppy up. Yep, yep, yep. We do. Okay, a lot of good food for thought today. I mean, I think this is going to be great. To then our next episode, will be getting into more details of Desolation of Smog and talking about yes. the Riddles in the Dark game and stuff. And I think this and is all a the, great foundation. All those things yes. that we yes. spent today talking about how you shouldn't do them, next episode we'll be doing them. We'll be doing them. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm broadcasting, but... Is it very important? So all this, yeah, all this, we'll, all we'll, this high, high we'll philosophical stuff... Yeah, all this high-polluting philosophical stuff is great. Next week, um, you know... Why? What Peter Jackson was thinking when? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so anybody who takes notes today can call us on it. You know, next next time when we start to give our own opinions about the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, Rybar. Okay, Rybar. Rybar. Thank you, Faye. That's it. Okay. Nothing. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, so yeah, um, Alden Foster was asking about uh, Shadowlands uh, as an example of what I was talking about. Um, sort of, sort of. It, not in is not so much in that the C.S. Lewis film Shadowlands is not so much about 
the creative process of, of C.S. Lewis's writings as it is about his, his life and his uh, marriage. But, um, but yeah, that, that, in that direction. Anyway, okay. So we we're 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 to the we're we're gonna talk about upcoming things, right, Trish? Is that where we're at? Yes, we're okay. to the announce we're to the closing and announcement section. Closing and announcement sections of our of our so detailed script. Minutes. Exactly, right. Okay. So <laughs> just to um uh, just to do some quick, uh, uh, just to let you guys know stuff that's coming up and things that are going on. For those of you who didn't see or weren't involved, we started this past week on Tuesday um, the Unfinished Tales class, the newest Mythgard Academy class. These are free and open classes. They are book dis- they are book discussions that are sort of inspired by uh, uh, the Silmarillion Seminar, that kind of let's, uh, you know, come together as a group and read a book uh, and sort of discuss it through a chapter, a couple chapters at a time, um, week by week. That's what the Mythgard Academy does, and those classes... And it was to a pa- packed house Packed house, oh yeah, we God, had we, we had a... We had a we had a hundred people and and we had to set up an overflow room. Uh, Ed Powell, who is the uh, who is the Sarum in the White of the Mythgard Academy Council, um, uh, used his palantir to set up a simulcast. Uh, you know, on the web page as a kind of overflow room for people who couldn't make it into the net mood. It was really cool. It's just so scary to call Ed Sarum in the White. I just. You know, I said, does that mean we shouldn't trust you? <laughs> well, that's been the Ed and I have been joking about that from the beginning. You know, I, I, I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, in my very first email announcement, I was like, I chose Ed for this job because he has a mind of metal and wheels, uh, and oh, I think he's oh, perfect. Um, uh, but the thing is, it's, he's still white. He's still yeah, white. He, so that's he, good. he is. Yeah, he is. He is. He is still white. Anyway, um, so uh, so yeah, so that was that was really fun. We had a great first response to Unfinished Tales. We talked, about, we did an overview of the Unfinished Tales, and we talked about tour. We're going to start the Turin uh, Turin Bar store. We're going to do two weeks uh, on the Narni Heen Hurin. Um, so you know, brace yourselves. Uh, you know, make sure you take your medications before we do our discussion <laughs> of Turin, because you know, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're on antidepressants, make sure you're up to date because I'm telling you, the Turin story gets to you. If, uh, if you know. anyway, so yeah, and I, actually, I have to be careful because seriously, like one time when I was teaching this story, I reread it like two or three times in one oh. week when I was teaching oh, it, God. and I was at, 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 at the end, I was I was like seriously emotionally messed up, like I couldn't handle it. I've been avoiding it, so. reading Children of Huron because I understand it gets even worse in that full book. Version. It does, yeah, and basically oh, the God. the unfinished tales version is very similar. Um, oh, the, the 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 published Children of Huron is based very largely on the unfinished oh, on tales one, which which we'll talk about on Tuesday. So yeah, anyway, so so yeah, we're we're. Um, we're gonna so this this coming Tuesday evening nine thirty p.m. Eastern time we're gonna be doing the first half all the way until uh, Turin arrives uh, in Brethil. Um, so all the way through the fall of Nargothrond we're doing um, on in Tuesday's class. So uh, so for those of you who can join us go to uh, Mythgard uh, www slash academy and you will find the unfinished tales. Uh, webpage. The uh, links to our class sessions are there. Um, 
And uh, remember, and, and thankfully the links to the audio and video as well. Yes, the so. audio, which are not up yet. We've had a little delay for the first one because we're still getting things in place, but that should be just about done. Um, and I should be able to get that stuff up by tomorrow at the latest. So for those of you who are waiting for the recordings, my apologies on the slight delay this time. They'll go up. They'll, they'll go up quicker in the future. By the way, we're following that same model with the Riddles in the Dark page. Just yes, just to let folks yes. Know. The recordings of this will also be available on the web, right. the, the the Riddles in the Dark web page. Yes, and the live links. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we so posted uh, the schedule ahead of time. Yeah, and we exactly. have the live links. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good. And the one other thing now, so you get reminders. Exactly. Sorry. The one other thing that's going on uh, this coming week, uh, this week, this Monday, starts our next semester uh, in our Mythgard Institute classes. So for those of you who uh, might be interested in going a little bit deeper, if you have, you know, if your reading of Tolkien has led you to, as it has so many people. Uh, you know, a desire to actually dig in and study fantasy literature and Tolkien and medieval literature and all those other things that Tolkien studied, um, you know, and was so devoted to. If you would like to 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 learn more about these things yourself and really dig in um, and uh, uh, and 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 immerse yourselves in these things, um, we have the Mythgard Institute program, the master's degree program, which you can either audit classes just to to, to sit in on them and get uh, you know the advantage of of taking some of these classes um, with really world-class scholars. Um, the new class we're offering... I'm, I'm doing a class on Chaucer this semester, so um, if you're interested in, 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 in learning how to read Chaucer, in, in really experiencing one of the greatest medieval authors, Chaucer is, Chaucer is totally my second favorite author in the world, uh, uh, second to Tolkien. Um, I really love it. So... Um, Anyway, uh, if you so if, if you're interested in actually getting into some uh, uh, some stuff, uh, Michael is asking me what's the best text for the Middle English of the Tales. Uh, the Riverside Chaucer is the default. I am um, um, there are a couple other also editions make, of the Canterbury Tales. Also makes a great uh, paperweight or or doorstop. Yeah, it's large. Um, it's 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 and uh, for many years it's been hard to get hold of the paperback version but anyway amazon, um, amazon will also rent it by the way i noticed uh, at least amazon us when i went out to get it i got a used version of it but they'll also rent the book oh, that's I fascinating yeah, yeah. So. that's sort of taking textbook return to the next level yes um, right, right but uh anyway um so, so i'm teaching a chaucer class um uh, Dr. Amy Sturgis, who has been uh, teaching with us for a while now, she is fantastic. She is her her specialty is the history of ideas. So what she has been doing has been doing um, individual semester classes on the whole history and development of of modern subgenres. So she, she's she did a two semester class on the development of the science fiction genre from the 19th century forward. Um, she has done a class on dystopian literature. She's done a class on mystery uh, literature. Uh, now she this semester she's doing one on gothic literature going back to 18th century gothic novels and looking at the gothic tradition moving forward um so that is uh um that is uh th that class should be really cool and then our third class is a class uh, uh on celtic mythology and uh uh modern uh uh, children's fantasy. Uh, so looking at, it's, we'll spend the first half of the semester reading Celtic mythology um, and then looking at the ways in which that mythology has been integrated into modern fantasy literature, uh, especially modern fantasy literature for kids. It's a really cool uh, class. And 
Dimitra Femi. This is her first semester teaching with us at Mythgard. Um, she is just world class. She is one of the top Tolkien scholars in the world um, and just a fantastic teacher. Um, so we are delighted to have her joining us this semester. I, w- I want to give a plug as a Mythgard student here to the folks, you know, because we have so many people now with the Unfinished, with the Mythgard Academy and, and with Riddles in the Dark really loving you know, the engagement, Corey engages folks, we get to engage with one another. Um, and there's been all this furor about chat rooms and all this stuff. Let me just say with the MythGuard courses, whether you do it as an auditor, which is, I think, the, one of the best deals in the planet, or as an actual program participant, um, it allows you access to the discussion board for the course and also to the chat room if you want to be in a chat room during the lecture. But the discussion board, I got to tell you, folks who are MythGuard students just blow me away. You know, you can do a, a have the lecture with your professor and then the discussion board picks up the topics and folks are just so learned and so insightful and so um, willing to debate on the discussion boards that if you like that kind of thing, then definitely that's something you don't really get with the free academy courses other than what we do on like Facebook and whatnot. Um, But it's definitely something you get even if you're just doing it as an auditor with the MythGuard uh, courses. And Corey did not pay me to say this. (laughs) Yeah. No, it has been, it has been from the beginning um, so rewarding and so delightful, uh, the group of people who have been involved as MythGuard students. Um, And, you know, and I will say that the, the, the way in which that has been working out, the number of, um, there has been a very large number of Mythgard students who, keep in mind, are, are people who have not been by any means professional academics, um, but who have really come back and immersed themselves in this and who are, now, um, who are now presenting papers at scholarly conferences and even getting published. It's been really cool. I know. No, people would not know that I'm a high, high-powered senior corporate <laughs> That's what I've always been, you know. And, I mean, Mythgard's turned me into this, you know, kind of scholar. Yeah. I'm a kind I, of a scholar. How, <laughs> how many papers have you given at conferences now, Trish? Like three or four now, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 You're, you're, and, uh, Trish is now, like, a regular in the Tolkien conference circuit now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm prepping up my next MythCon proposal. Yeah. How many of those papers have you sent to me to read? <laughs> Actually, today I was thinking maybe I should give you the whole conference experience, Dave, and I'll record them and send them to you. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'll listen to them, too. <laughs> and my one at MythCon actually had visuals to go with it. I had this whole Elrond family tree thing with all these great visuals Excellent. that I'm trying to figure out how to, how to send to you. <laughs> I, was a, I was a big fan of the talks in MythMoot that combined, uh, that, that, that skillfully used PowerPoints and visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They're definitely, you can do PowerPoints poorly, yes. uh, but if you do them well, it's it's certainly more engaging than just listening to someone read their paper. I, I, there's there's part of me that's like, I just, you know, just give me the, I'll just read it, give it to me. Right, right. Because right. I have to admit that, you know, Verlin Flieger has always, she has attended every one of my talks, and I have to admit that I find that daunting. <laughs> she, has a poker, she has a poker face, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, I just don't. I don't know. I don't know. Is this working? Is this not working? And of course, if I ask her after, she's such a nice person. She'll always say, "Oh, you were fine." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. Yeah. Verlin Flieger has an awesome game face. You know, when oh, she's she when she's there in session and she's like listening and processing what you're saying, she's totally got her game face on. And I, I absolutely know what you mean. <laughs> oh, it's just it's distracting. And she sits up close to the front. And you're like, oh my god, I'm not. You know, oh. you know. Just, when I was doing Elrond's family tree, I kept like stealing a look over at her, and I got no, I got nothing. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um. Uh. Anyway. Yeah. So. Uh, 
when can we get some of these? We need to get some of these people on here, Corey. On on riddles in the dark. Yeah. Well, it would be fun. It's something I've been thinking about. You know that maybe we could try to get some more uh, some more guests. Even if not on riddles in the dark, I uh, talk and chats. Yeah, talk and yeah, chats. I want to hear. I want to hear what uh, Dimitra Femi thinks of the films. And yeah. I don't even know if is Verlin Flieger even bothered to go watch. Them. I. I think Verlin has more going on in her dislike of the movies than just the movies themselves. She's very loyal to the Tolkien family, and I think, yes, you know, um, she's it's it's a kind of a sore subject for her. I mean, I've kind of touched on it a couple times with her, and she and she Amy, gives me a Amy, funny response, but I think there's some stuff going on there. Yes, I think yeah, so too. Amy Sturgis, I'm sure, has some interesting thoughts, and she's a dynamic podcasting personality. Yeah, no, it's it's you know uh, a couple people you know as we're starting our last season of riddles in the dark you know there have been a couple people who've been saying oh man like this is the last season that means it's going to end what, what are we going to do after that um and my main it's answer like starting on the last chapter of a book exactly exactly um oh something else will come up something else will come up and anyway the other thing that i would like to do is more tolkien chats i would love to right. do a more systematic series of <clears throat> talks with other scholars talks with fans talks with you know, just different people who are interested in Tolkien. You know, it'd be fun to um, to get in people from lots of different perspectives and interests and backgrounds to talk about Tolkien and stuff. So that, that I suspect are going to do a little bit more, um, uh, more yeah. than that. So there'll be more. There'll be more cool stuff after this ends. So yeah. yeah. Okay, time to Godspeed us. Corey. Okay, very good. Well, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>